0: Homeless Link is the national membership charity for frontline homelessness services. We work to
1: improve services through research, guidance and learning, and campaign for policy change that will ensure everyone has a place to call home and the support they need to keep it
0: in this series of the going beyond podcast we will discuss the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being looking at managing stress burnout the effects of vicarious trauma and the importance of debriefing and reflective practice in each episode we will speak to a guest who will tell us about their expertise provide practical tips for improving well-being and discuss the realities of working in the sector i'm joe turner national practice development project manager at homeless link and i'll be your host we hope you enjoy it. In this episode we will be speaking with Dr Emma Williamson, Consultant Clinical Psychologist and Clinical Lead at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust Psychology in Hostels Project. We'll discuss why it is so important to allow time to debrief after an incident and go through different models of critical incident debriefing. Hi Emma, how are you doing? Hi, lovely to see you Jo. Very good, thank you. Good, well, thank you so much for being here today for the Going Beyond podcast. Um, so, to start us off, could you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, what you do, and perhaps the type of work that you specialise in? Yeah,
1: so I'm Dr. M. Williamson. I'm a consultant clinical psychologist, and I'm the clinical lead at South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust Psychology in Hostels project. Um, I've been the clinical lead there for um, coming up to 12 years now, actually, really steadily growing access to psychological therapies um, in partnership with the homeless sector. So NHS really working inside housing and homelessness sector um, services to support people accessing psychological therapies. Um, alongside that actually i also um lead an online training platform to spread best practice so making sure that we're supporting training and development for staff within the voluntary health and social care sectors which is animo training platform where we we spread things and we talk about things like debrief as we're going to be thinking about today and other best practice developments.
0: Brilliant, that sounds incredible. So, so so far in this series of the podcast, we've spoken about burnout, the importance of boundaries, the effect of vicarious trauma, uh, and we've discussed how we can use mindfulness to unpack stress. So, as many of us know, when working in frontline services within the homelessness sector... There can be times where we have to deal with incidents and often these situations can really push us out of our comfort zones. Um, So I wanted to start by asking you, Emma, why do you think debriefing after an incident is so important?
1: Oh, I think it's absolutely crucial. And for me, it's one of those real central linchpins, actually, for maintaining good practice and our healthy working um, uh, in the settings that we're in. I see that it sits really nicely alongside things like reflective practice, supervision, um, good kind of working processes. So debrief is one of those core strands. And the reason is that the work's tough, isn't it? We're we're dealing with high levels of distress and complexity and system challenges um, and often high levels of incident, under pressure, staff teams, sometimes short staffed or stretched. Um, And actually, we need to make sure we're giving time to process and look after ourselves. We know there are, as you know, from um, previous podcasts, really high levels of burnouts um, and vicarious trauma. So that trauma that we experience, trauma symptoms as a result of being exposed to distressing information or experiencing trauma ourselves. So Direct trauma or vicarious trauma is when we're listening to trauma um, and and that leaves us with the same types of symptoms and burnout we know leads to um, emotional exhaustion a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment in work and also um, can mean that we have compassion fatigue. And really, despite being so values-based often in this work and driven because we care, we can then find it really difficult to tune into the needs of those we support or our staff team. So it's kind of central to making sure we keep connected to ourselves, connected to the work and, and can continue to be well and have a sustainable career.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's about how we prioritise debriefing as well after incidents. And I know in previous roles where um, I've worked in frontline services and you're so busy that actually even, you know, after that incident, everyone's everyone just wants to go home. They don't want to stick around. They don't want to chat. And actually, you're then bringing that home and you're kind of debriefing by yourself. Uh, in your in your home um, and that 's never as effective and you've ultimately you 've brought your your work home and you haven 't processed it as a team and thought about kind of how you can support each other and it then feels quite kind of isolating you 've got this thing inside that you haven 't really processed um, and I know that yeah I've definitely done that before.
1: I think it's really important that we make space and structure and prioritise all of these processes as routine practice that we do have regular reflective practice but also when there are incidents that we're building in debrief and how we even build it in on a daily basis. I know myself that often um, it can feel like the last thing we want to do as you say and sometimes when we need it most we're less We less tempted to and that's because of our natural psychological defenses they are building up they are kind of pushing away that difficulty trying to cope often trying to not focus on it it's the last thing you want to do is go into detail and talk about something right off the back of an incident but how we can then make time that is protected to do that um, is really important
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it would be really useful for the listeners and me to kind of talk through different models of critical incident debriefing so that those who kind of are new to management or they are interested in looking at different ways of debriefing can kind of use these these models, perhaps.
1: So there are there are lots of different models out there, and there's a few that we use in our uh, homeless services, what we found particularly valuable. Um, one of those is something like everyday good practice, which you could build in. And we've piloted um, this in some of the services that we work in, um, which we call shift reflection. And that would be something that you could do at the end of every day when there's a handover, when there's staff changes, if you are um, have particular Daytime services—you could do that at the end of the day, or if it's there's different shifts, um, or when you come together. So just trying to build in a shift reflection where the whole team can come together at those key points, punctuated through the day, to process what's been happening. And we know that actually the impact of the work can build up on us. And I I sometimes use the metaphor of like splinters under our skin, and actually we can get little splinters. Of the work and difficult things which really get under our skin and are a bit uncomfortable Um, and that we know that if you don't attend to splinters they're going to get infected they do fester they become more of a problem and actually I think that's what the everyday shift reflection can offer us just that little chance to take out those splinters from the day um, and allow ourselves to repair And restore so we're not leaving little things that chip away at us and fester um, emotionally and have an impact so shift reflection was first introduced and piloted at the maudsley um, in inpatient psychiatric settings actually they were finding that the level of um, distress and disturbance that the nursing teams were managing was quite notable um, and uh, that this was having an impact on staff's well-being And they they introduced and it's kind of that everyday pressure that builds up, not only when there's been a critical incident. And they piloted introducing a shift reflection where the whole team would just come together together at the end of a handover um, and uh, spend a few minutes um, processing what had gone on. And they found it lead to significant benefits for the team. Um, and that we then began to introduce and pilot, take some of this learning and think about what that looks like in a homeless setting. So the model, just so if people wanted to give this a try, to try and introduce it, would be that um, find a, a time in the day, think about your rotors or structures where you could come together as a team, maybe at a handover, and take it in turns to go around in a circle and just to name Something um, about the day that has been the most difficult or distressing or the hardest part and something that you're grateful for or that you think went well or that you're proud of. And actually, we found that by both leaning into the distress and difficulty and naming that, so you are leaving that, you're having that witnessed as a team, you're able to process and name it. Um, And then moving on to containment, which is the strengths based reflection. This is what went well as well. Actually, that helps teams sustain Um, themselves it helps you process individually you have that outsider witnessing by sharing that as a team the team can then be aware of what was difficult for each other and check in they may do further developments or follow up with each other later but just that very simple process of just naming allows people to leave that difficulty at work as you were kind of talking yourself not talking not taking it home And that when people then leave, they walk out that door, they're able to kind of have a transition. Um, and move into uh, their life outside of work and leave that there and we have seen teams that have been able to try and introduce this routinely and pilot its effectiveness that it does have a lasting benefit for teams super easy literally taking two minutes each you know it doesn't add on time because that's another thing people want to go home their handovers overrunning, running <laughs> it's the last thing you want to do but actually it's it's a false economy Sometimes to not just give yourselves that couple of minutes as a team to come together to process.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think even just the giving people the opportunity to say, oh, this didn't go so well today or I struggled with that just allows people that opportunity to be more open and there not be an assumption that even if there isn't a a critical incident that day. There might have been something that's considered a bit smaller that actually you did struggle with and like you might have taken that home. And it's, I think, allowing giving just, you know, five minutes for everyone to be like, right, I'm going to be open about how I felt today. Just really kind of encourages that culture of sharing and supporting each other. Um, So it's really nice and like seems like a very simple but very effective kind of tool to use. Um, yeah it sounds great I
1: think it's um, it's a really nice way to come together and that they did see notable impacts on the inpatient psychiatric units as well so I do encourage people to give that a try I think that it's also um, really valuable for our resilience to focus on what goes well and that's also something that my psychology team for example have as a standing item in our team operational meetings we will always look for strengths successes compliments and we have it as a standing item and we encourage everyone to be thinking about what's going well and that's strengths-based alternative so processing the difficulty looking for um, what you'd like to build on more it's crucial in sustaining us
0: yeah it's so true because I think we focus on things that didn't go so well and you know oh god this happened and quite negative stuff so actually to end kind of a day on actually this went really well today and I'm really happy with this this thing that happened and I'm really proud of myself is like such a great way to kind of end a day that might have been kind of quite difficult at times but actually really like you said focusing on those strengths uh, to sort of end the day and kind of leaving that there and going home and feeling that kind of that last thought was okay, that that's something that went well. And I'm grateful for that. Um, Yeah, it's a really lovely way. Mm, Amazing. So obviously, there's this the shift reflection. And I think before when we spoke, there was also the the structured group process as well. Um, It'd be great if you'd be able to chat us through that, if that's okay. Yeah,
1: definitely. So um, the there are various group structures that you can use um, at South London and Maudsley, we use Critical Incident Staff Support, which is a structured process called CIS, is the acronym, Critical Incident Staff Support. Um, But we also have outlines of um, debrief structures on the Animo platform in our uh, PI course, for example, where people can download um, a flowchart and watch a bite-sized video about that. So there are lots of models out there and if people Google it, they'll be able to find some structures. But I think what's important is that this is something that's planned, that it's responsive after an incident um, and it allows all of the people that could be impacted or involved to have a chance to process. So when we're thinking about um, when we need a debrief, it's probably um, worth just taking a step back, actually, to think about what is the impact of incidents on us so that we then know what we're looking to help through a debrief um, and then what what you should be looking out for if you need further support after a debrief, because this is one part of a wellbeing process. Um, And so it's really usual after a scary incident, an incident of violence, a death in a hostel, maybe the staff team have needed to perform CPR on a client or call an ambulance or there might have been um, uh, an altercation between residents or towards staff. You know, thinking about the full range of incidents, it doesn't have to be only certain types of incidents that we might do um, a a formal structured debrief uh, because it's about our subjective experience and how we found that. And I think sometimes having a lower threshold for coming together as a team is really important. But it's not uncommon for us after a scary or distressing incident to have feelings of a little bit of residual anxiety after the incident, to be scared, to be anxious about coming back into work, to be thinking about it after work, to sometimes have dreams or nightmares about it, intrusive thoughts, you know, be horrified or feeling overwhelmed having panic, all sorts of these feelings and experiences are very normal, actually. And I think that's one thing that staff sometimes say to me is, oh, my God, I've been having nightmares and being very concerned about this. And actually, it's quite important that we can normalise that and think this is your brain just trying to process this. This has been a lot. And that's a normal, healthy process, um, as long as it's not lasting for too long. So what we want to do after... Um, a notable incident at first or a traumatic event, is we want what we call active monitoring. Um, And this is the same for post-traumatic stress after an incident, that we wouldn't go straight for psychological therapy necessarily, whether that's happening in work or outside of work, we want active monitoring. Uh, And that includes some good self-care, thinking about what helps you feel better. So thinking about your self-care and well-being, The things that you do that are nurturing um, and comforting, uh, you know, going for a walk, having a bath, watching television, a takeaway, whatever that might be. Um, Thinking about where your social support is outside of work, that comfort um, and structure that you get and where that might be in work. And and, and debrief is one of those elements that we might structure alongside that. So it's quite important that we notice what those symptoms and that they are normal. Um, So that when we have a debrief, if things are lingering, we know when to get further support. So um, so when we come into a debrief, I might sometimes say that actually to start at the beginning, we would contract a space um, and I would talk about those those types of experiences. Um, You try to do a debrief as soon as possible. Um, They within the best practice guidance is 72 hours to two weeks. Um, but you you might not do it on the day. You might just give people a bit of support, a little bit of shift reflection, then schedule it in the days following the incident. You want to try to have everybody there that was involved in the incident. Um, and sometimes that involves some managing of shifts um, and sometimes getting some cover so the key members of staff can be there and scheduling people that aren't rotated on to be able to come in. You know, sometimes it's night staff and how you manage that, make sure that night staff aren't excluded from daytime debrief processes. So that can be uh, complex sometimes for teens to manage. But I've seen people really be able to effectively offer that debrief with a bit of thought. Um, and um, you normally would have this facilitated by someone senior in the team who with perhaps a bit of experience um, or who has some structures Around incidents, it doesn't have to be a specialist debrief specialist or a healthcare professional, but sometimes teams will have external reflective practice facilitators or maybe mental health or psychological professionals coming into their team, and so sometimes they can offer debriefs for teams, and that can be nice to have an external um, agency. I know that services that also are in contact with our services at South London and the Maudsley, um, there is a central critical incident staff support team, which can offer this type of debrief to to a range of different local services. So sometimes there are facilitators out there, but you don't have to be um, an expert. It's about just following a process and a structure. So I really encourage everyone to to take up their um, debrief uh, structures if they would like. So you want to do it within um, as soon as possible at 72 hours to two weeks and have everybody that was there I also encourage members of the team that weren't directly involved in the incident to attend but those that were aware of it or knew about it because I think that they can pick up bits of vicarious trauma so indirect trauma as a result of hearing about incidents from other members of the team Um, they may if it's a death for example or a a close incident, um, a close critical incident, they um, may know that individual very well, the client, and so that it's important they're given a chance to debrief. Um, or they may also have a key role in offering support and uh, witnessing uh, and understanding where the team are at. So I think even if you didn't know a particular client very well or you weren't involved in an incident, I would encourage the wider team to attend. Um, a debrief um, and try to encourage everyone to attend even if they feel like they don't want to share too much because sometimes I've known the people that are struggling most with the incident are the people that decide that they don't feel able to come to that reflect to that debrief Um, and they're probably the people that need it most but perhaps there's no pressure to share too much but sometimes through the listening of others expressing the feelings it can help people that are cutting off from those feelings a little bit more to cope um it can help them get in touch with them and process indirectly um through hearing others um so so that would be the the setting up process that i would say about who attends and when you do it and um and what type of feelings might be coming up prior to that
0: okay and what would you say is the best sort of environment to have those those debriefs in because I think I mean for some people sitting in a big group and talking about how they're feeling might be actually quite difficult uh, for them so for those individuals what would you suggest what would be a kind of the best environment to have these group debriefs
1: so there's all sorts of different ways that you can debrief so you could debrief individually in supervision or to to be contacted by your manager directly or to have a peer debrief or the shift reflection as I was saying Um, so there are different formats this what I was just beginning to describe was a formal structured debrief which would be a group-based debrief and there's been quite a bit of evidence to show the benefit of that structured group process actually, because sometimes we might not even realise that things have upset us as much as they have and actually having that structured process or we think, oh, I wasn't involved in the incident or I didn't know that person very well. But but maybe it has an impact for us because it taps into our own stuff or stuff that's happened outside of work or historical stuff that's re-triggered. So um, I think that I would encourage everyone to try to come to that type of structured debrief and if people are feeling particularly uncomfortable to meet with their manager and understand what is it that worries you and how can we help you and even if you just come and you don't feel comfortable to share much I just it's value you know I value having you there um uh, so um and modeling that for the team that we're all trying to come together so uh, there are different formats but this structured approach I think trying to have people come together but there are other things around contracting which are important which include um thinking so the the first stage of establishing a debrief would be about thinking about the establishing the rules or the contracting the space together and you want to start by thinking about the environment don't you are we in a private room that's going to be uninterrupted you know it's not ideal to do it in in the duty office where the phone's still going to be ringing and, and clients might be knocking on the door for some assistance. So is it possible um, to have it uh, in a, a private meeting space and then get cover to cover the reception or put a note up if it needs to be closed for a period of time? Or some services that I've worked in have hired a small space or have swapped with a local service, and so they've gone and used their group room, so it's the staff that are there aren't like to be interrupted um uh, because they're not they're not running that service um do you need to put a sign on the door saying please don't interrupt um i'm sure lots of the people we work with might be super keen to be extra interrupting if they saw a sign on the door saying they couldn't come in um and feeling excluded from that but just knowing your your settings your uh, service users and, and what's going to work best
0: so that's some of the the containment and
1: the structure i
0: would say yeah i mean i'm i'm thinking back to when i've done debriefs before um and, you know, it's just in sort of the main office. Everyone's streaming in, kind of ch- chatting out loud. We've got different services popping in and out. So you never actually have that focused time. And it's it feels like because it's so distracted and there's not really like a formal kind of meeting put in place, people aren't really concentrating. You know, they get their laptops out and start doing their case notes or whatever. So it's I think it's so important, like you said, to kind of really carve out that time for a proper you know, group debrief, you know, find a space that you're not going to be interrupted, because I think it's very easy to get distracted from stuff like this and be like, oh, actually, well, there's something slightly more important that I need to do. Um, and getting kind of your priorities right in this moment is really, really key. And that actually, if you want to keep your staff and keep them well um, and, you know, keep them wanting to to be working in your organisation, it's about making sure that you, you are carving out that time for them. Otherwise, Yeah, people are going to burn out. They haven't, you know, they haven't been able to process stuff. Um, And I think that's a real problem in the sector at the moment.
1: And, you know, we talk about boundaries a lot. And this is another example of boundaries and practice. We need to be making time for ourselves and we need to protect our staff structured boundaries um, and that there will always be more need and there'll always be urgent things but if we don't protect the boundaries we're not modelling that um, for ourselves and for those we support so it's really important to do that and I'm I've worked for many years in homeless settings and I know how lively it is and how there's never an ideal room that's quiet and you've got other duties as well. But I've seen services do amazing jobs with with if they really want to protect the time. There's ways of doing that, as I've kind of been suggesting. So so thinking about it, I think. And that's the same for reflective practice. You know, there's not much time in the working week that's just purely about staff and their process and how they're doing in the work, you know, can you give yourself an hour a week, a fortnight, a month, you know, it's you're not asking a lot to really protect those time boundaries um uh so so yeah trying to find that space and i think that there's also you mentioned people on their laptops great example so we're in the contracting when you first come together so you found this ideal room maybe and you might have some cover and reception and um you've got protected and you've got all the right people there that you hoped to ideally um and this is why it might take up to two weeks to try and schedule and get people around. Um, and then contracting, like the facilitator, I would say, would would help think about some ground rules as we do in a lot of group processes. Like, can we have our phones off? Like what's going to help us work well together? Can we all respect each other and, and um, give time to each person to talk and not be on our laptops or just focus on each other for this period of time? So kind of, thinking about it being confidential and what stays, what's in the group stays in the group. There might be things that need picking up, but how do we respect each other's um, right to share how they're feeling? Explaining about the facilitator's role that I might help, you know, ask a few questions or move people on and encourage people to say as much or as little as they feel comfortable with. You know, even just being present is really valuable, so don't feel under a pressure to talk you may have been involved in the incident or you may have heard about it indirectly but that's absolutely fine so explaining a little bit about the process to help people in and you might have people that have done loads of debriefs before and done it with different facilitators or not so I think some of that helps put people at ease Um, and then what I tend to do is explain in the structured debriefs that I do that we will take it in turns to go round and allow each person to talk in turn for as much or as little as they want to do. Um, So this allows, it's not the same voices, it's not the more dominant voices, but everybody has a moment to share what they would like to in as as long as they would like before moving on to the next person. So I would explain that process. Um, And the you know, we can talk about how it's containing and then we would move on to what we do afterwards. So I can explain a little bit about the actual kind of four key steps that we go through, if that would be helpful. But but that contracting is really important to make it feel safe and clear what the expectations are.
0: Yeah, I think those those four key steps would be really brilliant to go through if you're able to. Yeah,
1: of course. So the what we find is that we want to lean into the feeling, but not so that it's, so dysregulated or emotional that it becomes too distressing for people. So we need to process both the understanding of the incident and the facts, as well as the feeling, and then what we would do next. But this isn't psychological therapy. Um, So we're we're not exploring really deep, distressing emotions. So if people start to become very dysregulated, we would offer some containment and think, what can we help you now? But what we would do is I would often... Um, explain the process and then I would go around each person in turn and just ask people to describe how they first found out about the incident or what they first so how they first found out about the death or how they were involved in the incident or what was the first thing they knew about this um, and the facts and to describe it in as much detail as they would like and then how that made them feel what were the feelings? And then what were the most difficult moments of that for them? So those three questions, I sometimes put those three points to each person. Um, and sometimes I will then follow up. So what, what was the most difficult moment of that? That might be a secondary question and then I'll move on to the next person. So what we're doing is we're going from the facts of the event, how people found out. So I first found out in my emails or a resident came knocking at the door and said someone was having um, a distressing incident upstairs. So some people were there and they talked through in detail. Other people found out in handover or when they came back from annual leave, etc. So that allows everyone not to have to be only in the incident to be able to share. And then to talk about how they felt, what was the feelings that were coming up, what was the worst moments for them, Um and and kind of what was so we're going from the facts into the feelings so that's step one and step two and then um you so I would go around everybody and then I would ask people um kind of what um they would need next so what went well in the incident and was there any learning um so it's It's not a time to criticise each other. It's not a time to find fault or blame. But sometimes people really need to say, you know, I wish I'd done X, Y and Z or, you know, it feels important that we remember this for next time. So the facilitator's role is to make that benign and be supportive. But it's really just allowing people to think, right, a future focus. What do I need now? What's going to help me? What do I need from the team? What will be the learning? So thinking about how we help people put kind of subtle action plans in place. We're not sitting there writing them down, but thinking, um, where do I get social support? What's going to help me manage this now? Um, and, um, and then I would, the fourth stage would be to think about um, some type of closing down process. So um, it might be about thinking about what do you want to take away from this? Or what would you want to hold on to? I find it really nice if we've had a death to think about what would you like to hold on to about the person? What are your memories or anecdotes or things that will stay with you? And that is often a really lovely way to do some kind of reminiscence experience, thinking about the person and funny anecdotes and and touching stories often come out through that process. Um, And it lightens the um, tone, the emotional tone after having gone into the difficult feelings. Um, So they would be the the four kind of steps. It's kind of the facts, steps about what happened, the feelings about how it was, what was the worst part for you, and then maybe moving into lighter feelings of what you were grateful for or what worked. And then future, what now, what are you going to do to look after yourselves? What do you want to take forward? What's the learning? And then a closing down. So Um, thinking you know what you tend to do now what you want to hold on to about that person Um, etc so that is a really nice flowing process which leans into the feeling a little bit but also is then containing and helps take people out of it
0: yeah definitely that's really useful to go through those four steps I think it kind of It's like a circular thing of like, let's delve into it, but let's make sure we're not sort of ending on really going in on those feelings because you'll then still feel like there's more to go. So, yeah, that's um, that's really, really useful. I'm wondering if we can just quickly touch on, you know, after after an incident, say that you've had uh, you've had a debrief, um, either the sort of the shift reflection or you've had you've had a structured group kind of process uh, debrief. What would you say? is a good thing to do if those feelings linger. So those feelings of anxiety or distress, if those, you know, after that debrief, you're still feeling, you know, a couple of weeks later, really feeling quite, quite anxious uh, or down. What would you say people sh- people could do in that situation?
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, as I mentioned, it's really normal to feel anxious or distressed a little bit after an incident, so just normalising that, but and we have that active monitoring. We're doing self care, watchful waiting, good good bits of self care, not too active around it. But if you found that the distress was continuing for more than a month, you might want to look to seeking some extra support around that if the difficulties persisted, um, and that might be continuing to have nightmares. Being quite jumpy or fearful most of the time, like that hyper vigilance and a high level of anxiety. If you were having frequent memories about the event that was intruding into your daily life, um, or if you were having difficulties managing your day to day responsibilities, such as going to work or family caring, if it was finding if it was having an impact, then you might want to seek some extra support because it's continuing after a month um and it's not unusual for people to um to seek some support but often we see that most of the time it settles down it'll be a small percentage of people that need a bit of extra support and i would say that people could talk to their line manager about it there may be support within your organization sometimes people have counseling lines or occupational health or support structures and uh, you could also talk to your gp who could give some support about this. There are helplines like MIND or um, Samaritans that could also help you. And you can often self-refer or get referred through your GP if you needed a bit more support to IAPT, which is improving access to psychological therapies. And they would do some structured support around traumatic experiences, for example. Um, But often starting within your organisation, there might be support available. But I would say don't suffer on, don't think or this is part of the work. Don't just avoid the feelings, because what we know is when we have anxiety, avoidance maintains the problem. And so we might just start not going to certain parts of the hostel where that incident happened, or trying to avoid being on a night shift, for example. So that avoidance isn't helping you address that ultimately. And so do Do understand that this can happen and it can be really effectively supported and helped if you get a bit of um a bit of support from in work so your manager knows what's going on and maybe outside of work if you need to. Yeah,
0: brilliant. Thank you, Emma. Um so unfortunately I think that's all we have time for, but thank you so much uh for speaking with me today. It's been really useful to go through the different models of critical instant debriefing, and I really hope that some of the listeners will use these methods. In their work going forward, if they're not doing so already. But yeah, thank you so much, Emma, for your time today. Thank
1: you. Really enjoyed that. And yeah, do have a go. Put some things into practice, and uh, let us know how that works. Thanks for listening. To keep up to date with the latest goings on at Homeless Link, please follow us on Twitter at homelesslink. If you're interested in training and development opportunities for yourself, your team, or your organisation, get in touch by emailing training at homelesslink.org.uk. We have a range of courses that help staff and organisations develop the skills needed to tackle current issues and improve services.